0: Welcome to the Hunt Back Country Podcast. This is episode number 286, and our guest is Michael Easter. Michael is not a hunter, or at least he wasn't up until recently. But a hunting experience in the wilds of Alaska became part of Michael's story and the story that he shares in his book. That book is titled The Comfort Crisis. We speak with Michael about discomfort. In the value of it we compare and contrast backcountry hunting to the everyday life a life which to quote michael in the book says is progressively sheltered sterile temperature controlled we're overfed under challenged and live in safety netted lives that's true we have convenience we have comfort and those are good things as we'll discuss in the show but too much of that is not good too much comfort is creating problems and so we have as michael titled the book a comfort crisis. Tune in to hear about backcountry hunting, how it is an antithesis to the comfort crisis, and so much more. Not only do we just kind of talk about our personal experiences with the backcountry and discomfort, we really dive into the science that Michael shares in his book. This is going to be a great conversation, and I highly encourage you to go check out the book. I'll say this about it. I got a free copy by PDF to check out before this podcast, and I liked it so much, I'm personally going to buy a copy of the book. Hope you do the same. I'll leave a link in the show notes for that. As always, guys, we appreciate you tuning in. We appreciate your support and any feedback you want to share. You can always email us directly to podcast at exomountaingear.com. But right now, let's dive right into this conversation with Michael Easter, author of The Comfort Crisis. Michael, welcome to the hunt back country podcast. I'm super excited to have you on
1: today. Thanks for having me on guys.
0: Yeah. So you are the author of the comfort crisis uh, and the subtitle of that is embrace discomfort to reclaim your wild, happy and healthy self. Uh, And we're going to talk quite a bit about the book and hunt that takes place uh, in the book essentially Uh, before we dive into it, man, just any intro background kind of context you want to share for who you are before we get into the book itself.
1: Oh, sure. So I, um, my background is in journalism. I worked at Men's Health Magazine for a lot of years, and I specifically have leaned into health and science journalism and also adventure journalism. So sort of combining those two, like going on adventures and kind of explaining why they can be healthy for us. So I worked at Men's Health for a long time. And then I took a job here in Las Vegas, which is where I now live, uh, teaching journalism at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And I continue to write for men's health outside a bunch of other magazines. so
0: very cool man. So your book begins in a place that Steve and I have both been in. that's Kattzebu, Alaska.
1: How did you end up there? So yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so I mentioned that I'm a journalist, right? Um, I've written about the science of human health and performance my entire career and you know, sort of early on into my career, I noticed that anything that improves humans usually requires going through some discomfort. So this could be like improving your fitness or losing weight um, or even improving your mental health, you know. Um, and as a writer, i would always been drawn to people who are sort of on the edges. Like I was the guy at Men's Health who would find interesting characters and in interesting places doing interesting things. And I ended up becoming friends with uh, Donnie Vincent. I assume probably your listeners know who he is, uh, does a lot of backcountry films and, you know, spends you no know, months at a time in the backcountry. And we become good friends. And he invites me to come on this epic sort of month-long hunt in the uh, Alaskan backcountry up in the Arctic. So because of this uh, job and interest that I have in the extremes, I... would you know, done some interesting stuff, but I was like, man, this could be a totally new experience. And I joined on and that is how I found myself standing on a cold, windy runway in Kotzebue <laughs> about to get into a plane that was, you know, a pack of the size of a pack of gum <laughs> <It's gonna laughs> drop us off. And uh, yeah, we, we spent about a month up there. So yeah.
0: that's awesome. I can I can relate to that. When we flew to Kotzebue, it was my first trip to Alaska, and obviously, I was just super excited. Was not nervous at all one bit till I got in, uh, got in the plane. And I'm like looking at the plane, and there's like there's seemingly parts missing in the dashboard, and you could just tell <laughs> it was like a very old plane. And it was like, man, this just doesn't seem like super reassuring. You know, like, I think this <laughs> thing's gonna hopefully make it.
1: No, yeah, I mean, just. I don't like flying in a 747, much less those planes, which yeah, are, you know, some of them are from the forties. Mm-hmm. They're, they're made with like that, um, the pilot I had up there, uh, I can't remember what the technical term for the fabric is, but he said, oh, it's just, it's kind of like a special duct tape on the plane, you know, <laughs> holds it together. I'm just like, oh, great special duct tape. Yeah. That's going to be, that's going to make this thing really airworthy. Um, yeah. But you know, I hop in either way, and um, drops us up, drops us off out there. And you know what was interesting, and sort of what this book gets into, is that you know I'd, I'd made that that observation about discomfort early on in my career, and I'm you know because of being at Men's Health, I'd had I've had to be sent into some you know relatively like extreme places, but they're mostly like extreme gyms and like sort of organized outdoor events or fitness events. And I've, I'm generally up on a lot of the research and talking to scientists and expert. I mean, that's part of my job. I pick up the phone and I call scientists and athletes and, you know, mm. thinkers in the space. Um, but I get out in the Arctic and it's like this radically new experience for me because I'm I'm like thrown completely out of my comfort zone in all these different ways that we just don't experience today in modern life right so some of these things are like we don't pack in a lot of food because food is heavy so i'm like miserably hungry the whole time every single thing that we do out there takes effort because we're carrying these packs and the ground you guys have been out there it's the tundra is just the worst thing you could ever imagine to walk on uh freezing cold up there the weather was we faced some really gnarly weather but even um being in solitude and silence up there is very eerie at first so different um and even just things like facing real challenges you know like we got put in positions where if we would have decided to quit like it could have been perilous you know and all this stuff kind of amplifies over time The longer you're out there sort of the worst the worst it gets um and then i go back but we like make it through right So then I go back to my modern comfortable life at home and I'm like totally transformed by this experience. I'm like 10 pounds lighter, much fitter than I'd ever been. But more importantly, it just felt like the dial on my, you know, sort of mental physical and even sort of spiritual health. Like this idea of like feeling like, like Zen, you know, it felt like it had been moved like 10 notches. It's kind of like this reset. And that made me think back to that observation I made about discomfort uh, years ago. And I could sort of notice, wow, my life at home now is unbelievably comfortable in every way. Like humans have engineered everything in modern life um, in developed countries to be as easy, effortless, and as comfortable as possible. But for nearly all of human history, Humans lived in these uncomfortable, challenging environments like like I experienced in Alaska. Right. So then I kind of wondered, as a journalist, that like when I have a question, it's like, that's my job. I chase down the answer to the question. And I wondered, you know, what are some of the downsides of this new comfortable world we live in? And then are there any like legitimate benefits to pushing against it and seeking out discomfort? So I have this question. I'd done the Arctic uh, hunt, and from there it was like, "All right, let's figure this thing out." <laughs> so, I start reading uh, a ton of research, uh, even things like ancient texts and you know government documents from the Cold War. And I traveled the world and looked, at, sort of, met with more characters who were sort of on the edges uh, and other you know researchers who are all sort of studying this idea. I talked to people at Harvard. Um, doctors at the Mayo Clinic, some special forces soldiers. I even traveled to Bhutan to meet with Buddhist leaders and Iceland to meet with some geneticists, all these kind of different characters. And, and all the research and the people I met with, they all showed me in their own unique way that, you know, humans really have made the world too comfortable. It's not that that's bad. It's just that we never face discomfort anymore in modern life. Most people, most of the time. And by leaning into discomfort and doing these things that we used to do in the past, these facing these evolutionary discomforts, like I faced up in Alaska, like it really moves the dial for us. I mean, and you can see the results of this super comfortable world we live in now. It's like the, you know, the overweight and obesity rate is like 70, 72% now it's projected to be in the eighties by 2030. And that's because we've totally engineered effort out of our life And our food system is built around essentially the idea of comfort food. It's, you know, we're we're surrounded in this like hyper-processed, super calorie-dense stuff. Um, And that's just one way. I mean, even even the idea of like, we've engineered boredom out of our lives. Like when I was hunting up in Alaska with Donnie, like there were times I was bored out of my mind. Because you're just sitting and waiting for these caribou. And it's like your cell phone doesn't work. So all of a sudden, like when I would be at home, if I had a moment of boredom, and I think most people are like this, you just automatically reflexively take out your cell phone. But boredom is like this evolutionary discomfort that uh, is actually advantageous because it tells you to do something productive. Um, You know, when we are evolving, anytime we were doing something and like the reward on our time had worn thin boredom would kick on. We'd be like, okay, I'm going to go do something else that could be like a hunt wasn't going well. So I'm going to go pick some berries or whatever. But now it's like, we can just cure boredom with a cell phone immediately. And this isn't really that productive for our lives. So there's, you know, there's a handful of discomforts that we've lost that I really sort of investigate in the book. And I tell that story through that hunt in the Arctic because I experienced them up there.
0: Yeah. And so much in there. I was going to ask a uh, you had this project or this book in mind or this concept and then went on the hunt to kind of test it or if the hunt kind of sparked the project and the idea, but it sounds like things really developed after the hunt.
1: Yeah. I think that it was, so I'd been on a hunt with Donnie in Nevada. That's how we met. Um, I did a men's health story on him and that sort of planted the idea, but it was like, do you know if there's really enough there? So, I, after I went up, it's like, I kind of had the idea. I was like, okay, we'll see what happens up there. And it was like, when I came back, it was like, okay, you know, it's on, let's do this thing.
0: Mm One thing that sits out to me reading your book and, you know, just me thinking further because of these concepts you've brought up is like truly how recent and how modern it is that we're in this situation. Right. Like, I mean, it's Human life and what a human experience is, is so different now than even a hundred years ago, much less thousands of years ago. And so, I really think we're kind of in uncharted territory, and we're starting to see the side effects of all these things. And to me, this is uh, there's a lot to explore here because it is so recent, right? As you said, it seems like people are studying it and looking at it. So, I'm just curious. Like any thoughts on just how truly recent and modern this is? And then leading into like what research is out there? Like you mentioned, I think the Mayo Clinic and Harvard and even geneticists in Iceland, like what's going on in terms of research?
1: Yeah. So in terms of the timescales, I mean, if you stop and think just, I mean, if you're listening to this, just like look around you, everything that most influences your daily life right now is probably a hundred years old or usually less. So it's like we live in air conditioning, temperature control, right? That's relatively new. Our home, the design of our homes is so new. The fact that we have food that is available all the time and is like hypercaloric, that's all new. I mean, we didn't really start having a ton of food stores until about a hundred years ago. Um, most people don't, uh, put any effort into their jobs anymore. Most jobs uh, don't require physical effort, where it used to be most jobs did. I think up till about a hundred years ago, 80% of uh, the world were farmers, which is a very physical activity. Um, Transportation, getting from point A to point B. I mean, just think of every single thing you do today. It's all new stuff and it's all stuff that makes your life easier, which I'm not saying that's bad, but you know, humans over time, because we evolved in these very uncomfortable environments where everything took effort. There wasn't enough food. um, The weather was, you know, often bad. We're just living out in the elements. We developed these drives to always try and be comfortable because that used to keep us alive. You know, when you have, when you feel deep hunger, it tells you go get some food. And when you find that food, you're incentivized to overeat it, to eat as much as possible. You're also back then there was exercise wasn't even a thing. Like if you, if you were to just move without a real purpose, getting a, you know, return on, uh, calories, like in the form of food, you wouldn't move. Cause that would, that would be more likely to end your life over time. Right? Like someone who just burned calories for the fun of it when there wasn't enough calories around would have died off pretty quick. Uh, we also heavily, heavily avoid risk that kept us alive. But nowadays we don't have a sense of what risk actually is. So risk today, like the things that, uh, give us fear and make us feel like we're in a position of, you know, fight or flight is like talking in front of a group of people where that's not a real threat to our safety, but we have this outsized fear of a lot of these, you know, things that are not really that scary, but we just don't see that. So it's like, anthropologists, if you want to get kind of nerdy about it, they call this an evolutionary mismatch, where it's like you develop these drives in one environment, and then you're brought into another environment, and all of a sudden they backfire, they don't, they don't serve you anymore. So that's essentially what we're experiencing. And in the grand scheme of time of humanity all this stuff has only been around for 0.003% of the time that humans have been on earth. So it's like, we just got, I mean, we were born into this stuff. So we think it's normal, but over the grand scheme of time, it's like, Oh my God, all this stuff is totally new. And we're all really just trying to figure it out. And in general, we're not really good at offsetting it. So of course our food system, it's amazing. The fact that we, you know, don't have to worry about being hungry anymore in general. It's amazing that we can work behind a desk and we don't have to break our back out in the field every day. It's amazing that we don't have to take a, you know, horse and carriage to get from point A to point B, all these things. But we just, because we have this drive to constantly be comfortable that used to really serve us, we're really bad at offsetting that. And also seeing how good we have it too, which leads to, um, some just general life dissatisfaction, where if you look at the grand scheme of time and space, it's like we have it better than ever. And yet you look at the data and people say, like, say the world is getting worse, their anxiety and depression rates are so high. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that really answers your question, but the research. So, in the book, I kind of look, I kind of focus on a handful of discomforts that we really lost. So, one of them, and I can lay them out and then maybe we can just go into the ones that you're interested in. But one of the ones that we lost is we no longer do really challenging things in nature anymore. So it used to be as humans evolved, um, we had rites of passage. So, and the reason for these was that you would have a person who was at say point A and you needed to get them to point B. You needed to have them become you know, more confident, more confident to be a better, uh, member of the tribe. So we'd often send people out in nature to do some really, really challenging thing. And along the way that person would learn a lot about themselves. They'd pick up skills and it was sort of, they transitioned into a new person. We don't do that anymore. Um, other ones I look at are, we're no longer bored anymore, which I mentioned, um, we don't spend much time in nature so i think 90 i think people spend 93% of their lives indoors and obviously we don't go outside because it's it's more uncomfortable it's more unpredictable and we like to stay within our safety nets we're programmed to do that but we also know that all the research says that spending more time in nature is really great for our brains and bodies like the mental health benefits of staying like just spending more time outside are unbelievable. Um, what else? Let me think hunger. We're no longer hungry anymore. (laughs) So like I said, it's, uh, we're surrounded in food and we develop these drives to, uh, eat as often as possible and to overeat when we do eat. This is why, when you eat something that is, uh, you know, delicious, you kind of get this shot of feel-good dopamine, and that really used to serve us in the past, and it's still great today. Don't get me wrong, but it can often compel us to eat um, past a point that can lead us into being overweight or obese, et cetera. Um, another one that I get into, and this is probably pretty relevant to your audience, is that we no longer engage with the life cycle. So it used to be that we have all this hunter gatherers and, you know, we were very aware and conscious of the life cycle. We would hunt for our food. We would realize where that food came from and what that, um, what it took essentially to continue living on, like for one thing to continue living, another thing has to die. Well, nowadays we've totally like sanitized death and the idea of death from our lives. And this goes from our funeral systems to our food systems. And then, um, in terms of fitness, obviously we don't have to put in effort into everyday life anymore. Like life can just be—you could take a thousand steps a day and live on and totally be fine, right? That would that would have been completely impossible for all of time. You would have you would have died. Like to live was to have to put in effort. So you look—if you look at the data, our ancestors uh, moved and were about fourteen times more physically active than us, and they're also really fit at a lot of different, different stuff. They were essentially one of the Harvard researchers said they were essentially (laughs) professional athletes whose livelihood required that they be, you know, really fit. And in the book, I look at one form of fitness that we've really um, taken out of our lives. So the human body evolved to uh, run and to carry heavy things across, uh, across rough terrain. And that's so we could hunt. We used to run down We used to run down animals and then um, spear them and have to bring them back uh, to camp. And, you know, a lot of people still run, but no one really carries stuff for distance unless you're in the military or you're a backcountry hunter or, or someone like that. Right. And we've totally engineered that out of our lives. And, you know, finally, you mentioned sort of the Iceland stuff and we've also, we're not dirty anymore and there's actually benefits to getting out and getting dirty in nature. Like this is a tricky one because we have COVID-19 going on right now, right? So I'm not suggesting like, oh, just stop washing your hands and, you know, touch a doorknob and then, you know, lick your hands. Like, no, I'm talking about like getting out in nature and getting dirty. It turns out that there's a lot of really beneficial uh, microbes and germs and bacteria that get on our skin and can really improve our gut health and our overall health. And then with Iceland, Iceland's a really interesting case because it was like this terrible wet rock in the Atlantic and no one lived on there for all of time. And then some, um, some people from Norway who were like disaffected there, these uh, Vikings, they went and uh, picked up, they kidnapped a bunch of women from Ireland and then they, they sailed to the Iceland. They decided they're going to take it over, Right. There's no one on there. And it's just a terrible, terrible place to live. Very uncomfortable. Um, but over time, what ended up happening is the island was so uncomfortable and harsh to live in that it seemed to have maybe called the herd a little bit. And the people who were the hardiest tended to live on while those who weren't did not. So this is likely why men in Iceland, despite having not great diets, not being super active, not, you know, just like being pretty middle of the pack for health they live the longest on earth because essentially they have this like gene that's helped them sort of live on. So that's kind of like a big picture thing. And then maybe we can dive into some of the stuff that you're, you're most interested in or wherever you want to take it.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's, as you like get into all those different things, it's amazing to me that backcountry hunting, you know, and backcountry hunters do experience a fair amount of those things uh, just as part of the endeavor. But yeah, let's. I do want to dive more into some of those, but before we do, let's like hit what is, and I'll probably mispronounce this, but what is misogi or misaji? Oh, you uh,
1: you got it, you got it right. The first misogi. Time. Yeah, nice oh, job, man.
0: Perfect. That was a that was a good guess. Just go fast and be confident. Um, <laughs> but so, it's this Japanese concept, and explain what that is.
1: Sure. So, it's a it's a Japanese myth, and it's basically a. Uh, long story short is it's a hero's myth. It's basically um, a character, you know, leaves the comfort of home and goes into this really trying middle ground. And, you know, there uh, he sort of has the battle and he doesn't think he's going to make it through this challenging middle ground to complete this task. Uh, But he, but he manages, he digs deep and he doesn't fail and he comes out the other side like a really improved person. And he knows a lot more about himself And he just feels like more connected. And he's kind of moved on to this other stage of life where he's like a, you know, a lot more confident and competent. So after I get back from the Arctic, I, um, I meet this dude whose name is Marcus Elliott and Marcus is a Harvard MD, but he decided he didn't want to be a doctor. He wanted to go into sports science. So he starts working. His first job was with the Patriots and he dropped their hamstring injury rate by like 80 something percent this is when i started really winning cuz he correct uh, he corrected with a lot of their injuries tom brady helped as well obviously um and now he works uh, he has a facility called p3 where he does um he works with the, a lot of nba players and players from other sports he has a co- contract with the nba and um he what he does is he does a lot of really AI driven, like deep data stuff on movement in order to like find where players can improve and how to help them avoid injuries. And it's all, it's all very data and sciencey and blah, 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 nerdy stuff. It's really revolutionary. Like he is the pioneer in sports science. So I told you that, um, to tell you that he does this other thing called Masogi because he realizes that look like numbers, figures, and data, they're great, but not everything that improves a human and human performance can be measured. So once a year, they do this thing called Masogi. And the idea is uh, there's two rules. They go out and do a challenging task. And the rules are this. Uh, one, it has to be really, really hard. And they define that by saying, like, you have to have a 50-50 shot of finishing it. it has to be a true 50-50 shot. So you should be, you should be failing at Masogi's Every other year, more or less, and then rule two is that you can't die. <laughs> and then the, the guidelines on this are that it should be kind of kooky, like just kind of make up something really weird. And the reason for that is because so much of uh, what people do physically today is to sort of compare themselves to other people. It's like, oh, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna run this distance because my neighbor did, and he or she got this time and I want to beat him. Like, this is really, if you just make up some weird stuff, it's like, you can't compare yourself to anyone but yourself. And then rule number four, uh, the guideline, the next guideline is, um, that you shouldn't like blast it out on social media. Like this is, you're doing this for you to learn something about yourself. So for example, they've come up with some weird stuff. Like one year they, him, he'll do it with, uh, himself, Friends and also some pro athletes who were very successful. And one year they got an 85 pound rock and they walked it five miles under the Santa Barbara channel. So it's like one guy would dive down, pick up this rock, walk it, you know, he's like 10, 20 feet below the surface, walk it as far as he could, which was like 10, 20 yards, maybe drop it. Then the next guy would come down. And after five hours, they'd moved this rock five miles. And another time they had never really stand up paddleboarded, but they decided they were going to paddleboard across the channel. And I think it took them like 10 hours. Um, They've also done some crazy like mountain climbs where it's just like, oh, pick a mountain, pick the farthest mountain we can see. Let's see if we can do it. And the idea is basically that as humans evolved, we had to do challenging stuff all the time. And we would face these, when we face these challenges, um, they would come out of the blue and this was also, we didn't have a safety net, right? So this could be something like we've, we've totally run out of food and we need to go, we need a serious hunt and we need this to be successful. It could be, you know, we're moving from our wintering to our summering grounds, but we had to go over this mountain pass and we encountered a storm and we have to really dig deep and do this thing could be like a, you know, like a tiger in the bushes or something. Um, and every time we would accomplish one of these things, when we would get off on the other side of that challenge, we would learn something about ourselves and sort of really see where our potential was, right? Because when you, when you accomplish like really challenging tasks, you're like, oh man, I have some stuff on board that I didn't know was there. And you feel like you are a lot more capable sort of teaches you what you're capable of. And you begin to have like this greater uh, confidence in yourself and more capability. Now in modern life, we've totally removed these sort of physical challenges uh, from our lives. You know, like I mentioned before, it's like a challenge today is having to give a speech in front of people. And when you fail that, it's like you get a bad look from your boss or you feel embarrassed or whatever it is. Like the consequences are not really that big. And we never really, we all kind of like tend to live in, unless you're like a really extreme you know, backcountry hunter, I would say the average person tends to live in this um, sort of safe space where they never really go out and they explore those edges like we used to be forced to as we were evolving. So the idea of masogi is that we're going to push you out to that edge of your comfort zone. And once you go past it, you're going to you're going to have these moments where you're like, man, I can't do this. I'm not going to be able to finish this. I'm not capable. But you're going to kind of keep going. And by doing that and coming out the other side, you're going to realize, man, like I'm a lot more capable than I ever thought possible. And if I'm selling myself short here, like how else am I selling myself short? And when you come back from doing something wild and crazy in nature. It's like all of a sudden having to give a presentation in front of the office is like, Oh, that's not a big deal. Cause I did insert crazy thing the other day. Like I've got this, you know, it's like, if you don't have these sort of real challenges in your life, you start to have an outsized fear of these kind of just little annoyances that we have in modern life. So by Doing something like a masogi, taking on a really hard task, you can sort of offset that and learn something about yourself.
0: Hmm. Steve, you didn't know you were a masogi master, did you?
1: (laughs) 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 No, I think I
2: like my first kind of venture into that was we've talked about it for Marcus uh, mountain bike racing, where it just truly pushed yourself for three hours so much harder than you can ever imagine. And that's what kind of opened the door to me of like, what else can we do? And that's kind of the beginning of the death hike and you know other random stuff i've been doing
1: yeah so you guys should tell me about the death hike because i want to hear about it
2: yeah i mean it, it's it falls all in line with what you're saying it was just kind of like what i i experienced that discomfort through the race and it was like kind of mind you know um mind opening what else am i capable of um and then yeah at the time uh, my business partner lenny and i were like let's see how far we can hike and so we rounded up this was back in 2015, I think we rounded up, uh, seven or eight guys and picked like a route over 24 hours that we didn't just had no clue if we could do it or not. And just set out to do it and ended up crushing it. And and then we've been doing the hike every year. It varies. Um, this year, uh, we sn- uh, flew into the Frank church wilderness and snowshoed out. Um, we, we just kind of varied the challenges every year just to mix it up. Like you said, so we don't have a, um, there's no basis every, every year. It should be a new challenge, right? The new, new terrain, new weather, new experiences, um, and just keep mixing it up. And it's just, uh, it's a life changing event. I don't know how else to put it. I encourage, and you know, we, we encourage it here on the podcast for people to get out and do these things because you just become a better human after you're done.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, and I think there's a really, um, there's a, there's a, basis for this. Like this, it's can sound kooky to people, but when you look at history and you look at the work of someone like Joseph Campbell, who studied uh, a lot of different cultures and myths and how people you know, used to live in these um, more traditional cultures, like these these stories of the idea of we're going to send someone out of their comfortable world. They're going to go in this trying middle ground and they're going to really have to dig deep and Really push to get through this. They're going to have these moments where they're like, "I want to quit. I can't do this." But by getting through that, they learn something about themselves. I mean, it really is something that's embedded into humanity that we just don't do anymore, right? These rites of passage we used to have, like there's the Messiah lion hunt. There's um, you know, a lot of Native American tribes would send people out into nature for a handful of days, like without much food and water. I mean, I mean they're across cultures in time and space. And we don't, we don't really do those anymore, but we know that they're important. Like it really is. I think Campbell described it as like, when you are, I can't, I'm going to mess this up, but he said something like when you're going out to slay the dragon, what you're really slaying is yourself because you're getting like, you're really transitioning into a new person by doing these, by learning something about yourself and becoming so much more confident and incompetent like it really is a new like you're kind of killing your old self i mean it sounds kind of weird to say but that's how a lot of these cultures uh think about it
2: yeah there's that See, I, we used to do a t-shirt it's a sir edmund hillary quote that said you don't conquer the mountain you conquer yourself um there's just so much truth to that
1: yeah yeah exactly exactly and i think this is um this is kind of slightly off topic for a hunting podcast but i do think it's interesting. Um, When people become more protected and more risk averse, we started to see this in um, the 90s with helicopter parenting where kids like weren't allowed to go outside and get rough and tumble and get in trouble and all this stuff. You see those generations born after 1990 because they had all challenges and risks. Moved out of their way, and this is only getting worse. Uh, mm-hmm. Those generations have the highest rates of mental health problems because if you've never really faced a real challenge in your life, well, when you get into a classroom and someone you you know someone disagrees with your idea, it's like, wow, that's that's a bit. Like, how do I handle this? I've never had this happen to me, and people tend to really have this outsized crazy reaction to that and it seems to mess with their mental health and then the fact that you add social media into the mix where oh like this crisis in my life is because I didn't get enough likes on Instagram which for that person totally makes sense because you've never you've never really had a challenge but if you have it's like oh this is just Instagram i don't really care you know
0: mm. I was gonna say there there was a quote from the book that I had pulled and put in my notes that it was from Nelson Parrish that uh, you included and in it. it says, Masogi's not about physical accomplishment. It asks, what are you willing to mentally and ins- or what are you mentally and spiritually spiritually willing to put yourself through to become a better human? I was gonna say that's why for me, things like the death hike do relate to everyday life because the physical act is so different than as you said maybe public speaking but when you're putting yourself in the discomfort and in challenge and mentally and spiritually finding who you are through a masogi, that becomes the basis then to face other challenges that maybe aren't physical maybe aren't outdoors maybe aren't wilderness but that to me is like when i read that quote i was like oh that's why it ties together like that's why doing the death hikes or backcountry hunts gives me confidence in other things because it's not about the physical it's about growing mentally and spiritually because of the physical challenge
1: yeah that's exactly it i think a lot of in modern world we've really disconnected the the physical from the mental from the spiritual and they've all kind of exist in their own little silos but those things really need to come together and there's a variety of reasons why something like, I mean, even the fact that a Masogi is in nature, it's like humans evolved in the context of being outside all the time. And we just aren't outside all that much, but we know that that time in nature is important. And um, the physical aspect is a lot different than something you would ever find in like a gym. Right. And I feel like once you get out to that edge too, on something like a death hike or a, a backcountry hunt or Masogi, you like things really start moving, you know. When you get to that point where you're like, oh my God, I don't know if I can do this anymore, but you somehow like push through that. It's like a, a switch, it's like some sort of evolutionary machinery just gets triggered. And it is, I mean, for me, is unbelievably rewarding. And it like really makes me come back into my everyday life. Um, not only feeling, you know, like I've accomplished something and more competent and confident, but also just a lot more grateful for everything I have. You know, it's like, <laughs> there's this idea uh, that I talk about in the book. Um, there's a guy at Harvard who I talked to who, who did this study that basically looked at problems and how humans see them. Uh, it turns out that as humans experience fewer and fewer problems, like we are in the world now, like, you know, most people don't have to worry about being hungry about, you know, having a, a nick that could turn into some crazy infection and kill them off. Like we don't have those kind of problems anymore. Well, it turns out we don't really ex- personally experience uh, fewer problems. What we do is we just redefine problems. So we have to now look for problems that are more hollow and just aren't as big of problems, but they still cause us the same amount of, you know, psychological angst, if you will. Essentially, this is the science of first world problems. This is why people, you know, lose their mind in grocery store lines when something, you know, wasn't 30 cents off, like they thought it was going to be. And like just all this, you know, stuff that you see a lot of people complain about that in the grand scheme of time and space is just completely irrelevant. Um, And so I think by going out on something like a backcountry hunt where you're cold, wet, miserable, hungry, tired, insert all the the things that you experience on a hunt that are unpleasant and uncomfortable for seven days. Like once you get back. So for me, you know, after being in the, in the Arctic for a month, I get back to the Kotzebue airport, which you guys have been there. It's essentially a, a shed. Um, but it has hot running water. And I, the first time I put my hands under that hot running water, like I had the biggest shit eating grin on my face that you had <laughs> ever seen, man. Like, just unbelievable. And that, that held every time I would be in hot water for like a couple of weeks. And even the idea of like, all of a sudden I can order a cheeseburger. It's like, man, that burger first coming out of the, out of the Arctic was like one of the best things I've ever eaten. And, and that sense of gratitude and for what we have, all these amazing things we have in our life that really holds for me, at least it did. And because of that, I think we can become a lot more uh, appreciative and it also alters our behavior because now all of a sudden, like I can see first world problems for what they are. And if I can do that, then I'm probably not going to have as stupid of complaints. Like I'm not going to get worked over, worked up over all the BS that tends to occur in daily life now, you know, and that can give you a lot of psychological space as well. And I think that's one of the reasons why Doing these sort of big epic outdoor events can improve your mental health because all of a sudden you're like, Yeah, I did that. And now I'm back in my life. And I realize that these problems I have aren't really problems at all. You know, Mm
0: -hmm. completely
2: agree.
0: It's funny you, you said that about the hot water. I came back from a trip one time and it was like my first morning back home in the house. And I was making coffee and I will often let the sink run. To till the water gets hot, and then like pre-fill my mug while my coffee's making, so that my mug's preheated. Mm-hmm. And like I'd never thought about that until I came back from this hunt. And I was like, it's so like that's such a luxury, right, to be able to have water to waste to make my cup hot, only to dump that water out. Like you can take that from a you know backcountry perspective, or even just the fact that we have running water and can literally waste it for no reason. And since then, like, since I had that revelation after that trip, like I do that almost every morning. I'm like, God, life's good. You know, like it's, it's almost <laughs> too easy that I can waste water to make my cup hot to then put my fresh coffee in my hot cup.
1: Oh yeah, dude, totally. And I mean, one so one for me is that going into this, like my background, I'm not a, I wasn't a hunter. Um, and I think the reason is I just, you know, I grew up in a single parent household. I was raised by my mom. She didn't hunt. It's like who was I going to go hunting with? Uh, and then I meet Donnie and I kind of tag along on that Nevada hunt. And I was like, you know, kind of interested in it, but I, I also was like, I don't know if I really want to, I could see that like I was okay with hunting. Like if you're going to hunt and eat your meat, I'm fine with that. I just don't know if I need to do it myself. And I think a lot of that was kind of reservations about, having to cross, you know, what I assumed would be a pretty heavy, uh, emotional and psychological barrier of, you know, actually killing my own animal at the same time. I'm like most people and that I eat meat. So that's kind of a weird <laughs> place to be in. Right. It's like, no, I'll eat meat, but I don't want to, yeah, I think I'm okay with the killing part. You do that. Um, and Donnie basically said, look, man, like if you really want to understand like why we come up here and do this, I think, I think you should hunt. He's like, I'm not going to push you to do it, but I think you should just consider it. So it's like, all right. um, I think maybe I'll try it. So we go up there and um, we'd been out for a while and had been skunked a bunch by these caribou. And finally we got in a position where um, basically these Caribou, we're coming up over this. Uh, we're going to come up over this uh, knoll, and we figured if we could kind of go around that this like saddle thing, and um, we might be able to meet them as they're coming over. And so we kind of haul haul butt over and get in position, and we're you know crawling on the across the tundra army crawl style, and I have the rifle, and and even at that point, I'm like, uh, I don't know if I really want to do this. We'll see, you know, and eventually these caribou, this herd comes over and, and there's probably 30 of them. There's two pretty old, uh, bulls. And one of them had a limp and Donnie was like, that's the, if you, if you're going to hunt, that's the one you got, that's the one you should shoot. I'm like, okay. And, but I still kind of wasn't sure about all this, you know, and they got within, you know, 180 yards, 170, 160, 150. And, Kind of looking for this guy in the herd, but he kept going in and out of all the other uh caribou and I couldn't really get a good sight on him. And Donnie just finally like looked at me and goes, dude, if you uh if you don't want to pull the trigger, you don't have to, but if you're going to, you got to do it soon. And kind of went now, he's getting farther away. So 160, 170, whatever. And um finally, like the group kind of opened up and he's just like, there. And just kind of took a deep breath, pulled the trigger, pulled it again. And he went down. And right after that, I'm a, I'm a mess. Like it was one of those where I'm like, Oh my God, what have you done? Like, there's no coming back from this. We, you know, we go and, um, see him and he's just like laying on the tundra. It doesn't even look like he's, he looks like he's been placed there by like, you know, a photographer or something. The only, the only real sign that, you know, he was dead is there's like the slightest trickle of blood coming from his neck. And Donnie left to go get my gears, kind of gave me a minute with him. And, and I was like, totally regretful. I'm like, man, I can't believe you just did that. Look at this like majestic animal and that's on you. But then once we started, you know, field dressing him, I started to see it more as meat and it occurred to me, you know, like, dude, you eat meat like every single day. And You don't ever feel, you don't feel any emotion when you do that at all. And like, and yet here you are really bent out of shape about this meat. So it's like, well, why don't I, why don't I feel that way about all the meat I eat and really come to recognize that like, there's a heavy burden behind eating meat. And I think for me, it was like by reinserting, by deciding to kind of cross that barrier into hunting, I learned a ton about, uh, the life cycle and it gave me a way huge newfound respect for, for meat. So I don't like that is one thing to your point about wasting water, the luxury, like there's no way in hell I'm wasting meat anymore. And it's interesting because I actually, even though I'm hunting now, I have like this freezer full of caribou, I'm actually eating less meat. Cause I'm like, do I really need to eat meat for this meal? Or am I just like adding it? Cause that's what you do, you know, which I think has been it's definitely been rewarding and given given me a lot more appreciation for for what we have and also just made me a little more conscious of uh e- eating animals basically
0: hmm. I appreciate you sharing that man it's it's yeah. good to hear that perspective
1: yeah it was uh i it was super rewarding uh like i said there's you know it's uh it was definitely emotional highs and lows um i described it i think i described it in the book as the most depressed yet the most alive I've ever felt, which is like the strangest feeling ever. And like, unlike anything I've ever felt before, but I'm very glad that I did it. And I think I'll probably continue hunting because of it. Um, it just a lot, a lot of newfound respect for everything that, um, goes into our food system, but also respect for, what hunters were doing not that i disrespected hunters at all but i'm like oh okay now now i get it you know
0: yeah that's neat i want to talk about boredom and you, you touched on this previously and it, you know we can talk about hunting and backcountry hunting or the death hike and these types of things and these are topics we've discussed and honestly don't get tired of discussing but i don't know if we've ever talked about the boredom of hunting and specifically the value of that. Right. So guys may go into a hunt and when, you know, the game isn't cooperating or the conditions are tough, or maybe you're stuck in your tent for a full day because of weather, like there's all these aspects where boredom becomes part of a hunt. And I feel that for myself personally, I'm sure many hunters like look at that as like a downside or maybe a bad part of a hunt and don't see the value that comes out of boredom. Um, you know, maybe even shoot, there was a day here just last week we were on a bear hunt and glassing for bears and just nothing, you know, we just weren't seeing anything. And after a while you're, you're glassing, you're looking and those minutes become hours. And then you can tend to want to think, oh, I'm bored now. But there's so much that can come from boredom, and then as you do in the book, kind of contrast boredom with essentially overstimulation. Um, so I just want to kind of explore that a little bit because it, it it's relevant to hunters, and it's obviously relevant to everyday life as we're just essentially constantly overstimulated. And something like a backcountry hunt, for example, can completely remove you from that. Um, and then when you talk about boredom, you said ideally outside. And then you said for minutes, hours, and days, which clearly made me think of a backcountry hunt. So uh, there's a lot there. And I just kind of want to explore that with you.
1: Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I sort of realized this idea of boredom and started thinking about it when I was up in the, the Arctic and we're, you know, we're glassing for caribou and they are not coming through. And my cell phone does not work. I did not bring books and magazines. So... I, you know, you can only like look at nature for so long. So then it's like, okay, what am I going to do next? It's like, well, I'll read the label on this cliff bar, you know, really just study it. And then you're like reading tags on your gear and just one thing after another, like just the amount of boredom, like the intensity of the boredom was unlike anything I'd actually ever experienced. And this is way different than life at home, right? Boredom is uncomfortable. We don't like, we don't like boredom. And it's this evolutionary discomfort that we evolved to have. And it basically yells at us that whatever we're doing in any given moment is an inefficient use of our time. Like we're not getting enough uh, return on investment for the time we're investing. And as we are evolving, it would tell us to do something to help our survival, whether that was, you know, going to a more uh, efficient source of food, um, spending some time to, I don't know. Improve our camp, whatever it would be, right? So, but now we live in this environment where anytime we feel this discomfort of boredom, we just like can pull out a cell phone, or turn on Netflix, or go on the internet, or insert any number of things. So the average person today spends more than eleven hours a day engaging with digital media. This is from cell phones, television, computers, uh, iPads, et cetera, et cetera, all the stuff that we have in our life, and. All this stuff is not even 100 years old. So if you think about that in the grand sweep of time, it's like humans went from having no digital media in their life for literally all of time to now it has essentially become our life, our life. And I talked to this researcher who actually studies boredom and what it can do for us and, and what it all means. And he basically explained that our escape from boredom now is like junk food for the mind. Um, because of that, we all just dive into Instagram or whatever it is. But when we're out hunting, um, you don't have that luxury of being able to pull out your phone or log on to Netflix or whatever it is. You're forced to sort of go through it. And it turns out that when you don't have easy access to devices, what happens is your, your brain tends to go inward. And you start to mind wander. And it turns out that mind wandering is actually a really beneficial state for your brain. It puts your brain in this um, mode called the default mode network and essentially gives your brains a rest period. So anytime that you're focusing on the outside world, like looking at your phone or watching Netflix, your brain is actually putting forth quite a bit of effort. This takes effort. But anytime your mind wandering, it's sort of like this rest and, and reset mode. So you kind of go through that and as you mind wander, you often use that time to come up with something beneficial to do, right? It kind of tells you, oh, like here's an idea and you have this, this time for creativity to come up with productive ideas, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we've just totally engineered that out of our life. So by hunting, it's like when I was up there on the, on the tundra, I didn't have that easy escape from boredom. So what did I do? I'm like, okay, now I'm bored. Oh, you know what? I could maybe write some of this book. So I pull out my notepad and I start writing stuff. Right. And then it's like, that becomes boring. Hmm, What else could I do? Man, I bet I could come up with my Christmas list right now. Like, so I'm going from, you know, boredom is like, I feel it. I go inward. I kind of think my brain relaxes and then it's like, Oh, here's an idea. And when you look at the research, um, Having engineered boredom out of our lives is one of the reasons that they think that rates like rates of anxiety and burnout are so high because we are just constantly stimulated. Not to mention, it's really messing with our creativity because now we don't have these moments where we sit around and come up with ideas. When you look at um, creativity scores from people born in the 50s to people born uh, in the 90s and 2000s, uh, they're 50% lower in the people who have, who are born in this time where we have all this access to media. So yeah, hunting mm. is a good way to get bored and you should, uh, you should embrace the boredom and, and use it for use it use it for beneficial time. I know some guys that I know will, you know, take their phone out hunting with them and, you know, download a Netflix video. It's like, man, we have so little time away from our phone. Like, why don't you just, why don't you just try being in nature and kind of see what happens? Yeah.
0: That's cool. Um, man, there's so much we could talk about in the book. Let's touch on, and you, you mentioned this prior in terms of humans and our capabilities, but you do have a section in the book all about carrying a load. And uh, obviously that's relevant to us as hunters. Uh, it's relevant to Steve and I, uh, essentially making pack systems to carry <laughs> yeah. a load. Um, but w- so I kind of wanted to ask you, what's what are the unique benefits of specifically carrying weight, right? You mentioned before um, you know, in the military, it happens. Obviously, for hunters, it happens. I'm seeing that spill over, I won't say into the general public, but I'm seeing more and more guys kind of like into wrecking. And I think there's that, that's growing. Right. But um, you touch in the book about, you know, strength and endurance and the balance and really that carrying a load, hiking with weight really does have some like really good value to it, whether you're doing it simply for training or for hunting or what have you. But uh, if you could elaborate there, I'd love to hear more about it.
1: Yeah. I started thinking about this because after killing a caribou, we had to pack it out and it was a five mile hike across the tundra and the hike was mostly uphill and it was like 100 a hundred pounds of load. And, you know, having worked at men's health and been forced to train in all these crazy extreme gyms and do all these extreme outdoor activities, it was like that pack out was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Like bar none. And so I get back home and it, it made me think like I'm, I was familiar with this research uh, that was done out of Harvard in 2004 that suggests that the human body is built the way it is because we evolved to be distance runners. So when you look at when you compare humans to all other animals, we are totally athletically pathetic, like <laughs> we're very slow sprinters, <laughs> we're very weak, we are not agile at all but it turns out we're really good at running long distances slowly in the heat. So this is how we would hunt. As we were evolving, we would do what's called persistence hunting. We would run an animal down for miles and miles and miles. Um, animals are not, uh, most mammals are not good at cooling themselves. So eventually the animal would overheat and we would spirit and we'd have dinner, but then it's like, it occurred to me, well, We'd have to carry back home. So, like, what was the role of carrying in human evolution? So, I follow that up and I go to Harvard and I meet with the guy who I emailed the guy who did the uh, original running study. And he was like, Well, actually, I'm studying that in my lab right now. So, I'm like, Oh, okay. So, I'm going to Harvard. And um, yeah, it turns out that we essentially were evolved to do two things, and one of them is running, and the other one is carrying heavy loads. So, the reason I mean, you look at how we're built. It's like, we have relatively short torsos that was so we could carry heavy loads better. Um, we have really strong, uh, grips, like outsized strength in our grips. That was so we could carry heavy loads. And this is something that we just generally don't do anymore in modern life because we, you know, we have, uh, grocery carts, we have dollies, we have all these things to, that we don't have to, so we don't have to carry and, it turns out the 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 Harvard researchers think that like doing the exercises that we evolved to do can be uniquely good for us. And we are really the only creatures in the animal world that can carry like no other animal can carry at all, really. I mean, they can drag things a short distance, uh, but not really. And I think that today, the people that are, that still do carry, there's essentially, there's a couple of groups, um, but one of them is special forces soldiers. Like r- the idea of rucking is the foundation of special forces training. Like, and it's made those guys into the fittest people at scale in the world. So I traveled down to, uh, Jacksonville, Florida. There's a company named go ruck that was started by a guy named Jason McCarthy, who was a green beret, And he's basically trying to get rucking uh, to popularize rucking among the masses, because you look at the data and it's like, look, running is great. I got nothing wrong to say about running, but if you're going to pick like one activity to do carrying weight and, and rucking and backpacking is probably the best single exercise you could do, because not only are you hitting cardio like you would with running, but you're also adding a strength element in. And that's what running really misses. And we know when you look at all the research, uh, it's really important to have enough muscle mass and to be strong in terms of longevity and also, you know, everyday performance and running often misses that. The other thing is that running, because of the way we now live, have, you know, we sit all day, we don't really move a ton running has a super high injury rate. Uh, you look at rucking and it's the injury rate is like six times lower. Like it's, you're essentially just walking, but you're adding some weight on. Now, of course, if you go into insane loads, like, you know, 80, hundred pounds, like that's a little more risky, but at anything at 50 or below, like the injury rate is very negligible. So Jason has teamed up with these doctors at the Mayo Clinic, who I also met down in Florida, and they're starting to prescribe rucking to their patients. They're both cardiologists. So what's, what I just love about this is that rucking is this thing that built the special forces, the the most fit fighting force the world has ever seen. And it's also this thing that these two doctors are giving to 70 year old heart disease patients being like, here, do this because walking is great, but it's often not challenging enough to their heart. So if they just add some, a light load in the form of rucking, challenges their heart more. And it also uh, improves their muscle mass, which improving your muscle mass, we know uh, is really great for your heart. So it's this really accessible form of exercise uh, that we don't do. And again, and to your point about backcountry hunters, like they're one of the groups who really do it and do it well. And I think that's why not only are backcountry hunters damn fit, but they're also oftentimes pieces of human leather. I mean, it's really just like a toughening and, hardening exercise that you just, you can't really get any other way.
0: Yeah. Awesome, man. Um, before we wrap up, tell listeners where they can get the book, maybe follow your other work. Uh, one final question. I'm curious, having gone through backcountry hunting now in this trip that you talk about in the book, having done all the research for the book, uh, and learned all about comfort and, you know, the dangers of it, what have you, what changes have you made in your day-to-day life? So when you're not, you know, on a backcountry hunt or a a Misogi, what changes have you made in your day-to-day life to avoid, uh, the comfort crisis?
1: Yeah. Um, well, the book is called the comfort crisis and you can get it anywhere books are sold. And I have a website, it's Easter Michael. There's some other stuff on there. And I'm relatively active on Instagram at uh, Michael underscore Easter. Not too active though. You hear what I had to say about boredom. (laughs) (laughs) But in terms of how I think about this in my own life, I think a lot of times today when we look at health, nutrition, fitness, like a lot of times people try and sell you like the one thing that is going to fix everything. And the reality is, is there's no silver bullets. So I think for me, it's like, how can I integrate in little ways, these discomforts back into our life? So for example, hunger, most people are not ever hungry anymore. So like a lot of times I'll do I'll fast. I don't think it's like a, a miracle cure for anything, but that time away from food makes you appreciate food more. And we know it has health benefits in terms of exercise. I rock a lot more, um, so I'm a professor at UNLV and I have to walk across campus all the time. So my bag that I keep my computer and books in and stuff, as I go to teach different classes, I also throw a 20 pound weight plate in there. And I just have that in there all the time. It's like not enough weight that I'm ever going to sweat or actually, you know, be, you know, disheveled showing up to class, but it's like just enough that it's a little bit extra. It's a little bit extra. And by doing that little bit extra each day, that really compounds over time. In terms of what i talked about with boredom i tend to think uh instead of less cell phone like you hear so many people say uh i tend to think just more boredom because your brain doesn't know the difference between your computer screen and your phone screen so i just try and have times where i spend time out in nature don't bring the phone and can really am forced to let my mind wander also spend like i said a lot more time in nature um there, I mean, there's a lot of things I've sort of weaved. And I think that's what the book sort of provides is it gives you like, I'm, I'm not giving you a, a rubric that says, do this at 7am, do this at eight, 8am. 8 like, no, I'm giving you a lot of different ideas. You can pick and choose from there and see kind of what works for you. And I mean, I think it'll move the dial.
0: Perfect. Michael, appreciate the time, man. Uh, definitely have enjoyed the book myself and would recommend it. And uh, yeah, man, I'm, I'm excited to get this one out there.
1: Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, it was awesome to talk to you guys.
2: Yeah, really appreciate it.
0: Well, there you have it, guys. And once again, the link to Michael's book will be in the show description if you want to check that out, as I am. And we thank you for the support of this show. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback for us, send an email to podcast at xomountaingear.com. As always, if you can share the show with a friend or leave a review in iTunes, that helps us tremendously. And if you haven't yet hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically, we'll talk to you soon.